Now, I, I heard about a, a good old boy who was a little bit overweight, and so he went to his doctor's office, and you know what doctors tend to do when, when you tell them, or when they find out that you're overweight, they tend to try and put you on some sort of diet plan, right? So the, the, the doctor told him, I'm going to put you on a skip-a-day diet plan, okay? So what you're going to do is you're going to eat like you would normally eat for, for two days, and then you're going to skip a day, and then you're going to repeat that procedure for two weeks. So the next time I'll see you, you're probably going to lose a little weight. I expect the next time I see you, you probably lost about five pounds or so. So the guy went, you know, went home and, and followed the diet plan. Sure enough, he came back two weeks later, and shockingly, he had lost 20 pounds. The doctor was amazed, and, and so he asked, well, well, did you lose all that weight just by following my instructions? The guy said, yeah, yeah, I did what you told me to, but I got to tell you, I thought I was going to collapse on a few of those days. And, and the doctor said, do you mean you almost collapsed because you were so hungry? The man replied, no, I mean, I almost collapsed from all that skipping. <laughs> <laughs> and then from the awkward stares that my wife was giving me in the midst of all that, too. Well, if most of us were to follow the doctor's design for a diet that was like that, then we would experience real hunger. And one of the ways that a doctor can tell if someone is healthy or not is by evaluating an individual's appetite. When there's a missing appetite, when there's not a desire for the physical sustenance of food, doctors get a pretty good indication that there's something wrong with the physical health. The physically healthy experience this natural appetite, which leads them to experiencing hunger for nourishment at various times throughout the day for most of us. And in today's passage, we're going to see that the same is true in the spiritual realm. Because those who are spiritually healthy, those who are in a right standing with God, those who are doing what God would desire for us to do, ought to have a spiritual appetite we ought to have a holy hunger and as in the physical realm if if you don't have a spiritual longing if you don't have this spiritual yearning this holy hunger to be with God and to see God at work and to to see him making a difference in this world well we're going to see in this passage today that Jesus says that if you're not experiencing that holy hunger then you're not spiritually well And over the next few weeks, you're going to hear one of the greatest sermons from the greatest preacher who ever lived. Now, before any of you write me letters or cards and get the impression that I've gone off the rails in evaluating my own gifts, you should know that we're going to be evaluating the Sermon on the Plain. It's a sermon that Jesus himself preached on his time here on earth. It's a sermon that Luke records for us as Jesus steps down from the mountain and calling his disciples to be followers of him. And ultimately, it's kind of a sermon where Jesus orients them to the new work that he's called them to. And so as we walk through this sermon that Jesus preaches there in Luke chapter 6 over these next few weeks, I'm going to kind of preach a little bit of a series within a series as we talk about Discipleship 101. Because this is really Jesus' introduction to his followers for how they ought to live a life that would be pleasing to God that's going to equip them for what he is ultimately calling them to do. These 12 individuals, these 12 disciples who would also be known as apostles, they're even called that in the passage we're going to look at here today. 
and how they were going to be the foundation of the church. Jesus is preparing them to be his multiplying agents for God's glory on the earth. And that's what we're calling this Discipleship 101. Just after he calls them, he turns his gaze to them and he preaches this message that we find in Luke chapter 6. And so Jesus really takes his disciples here through two or three years of discipleship training as they prepare to learn from the master, as they prepare to assume his work here on earth as he ascends into heaven. And so that's the Sermon on the Plain that we're going to be looking at here today. And Jesus gives his new leaders in training an introduction to Christian discipleship. This is the foundation they need to prepare for his work. And you can be sure, my friends, that this is the foundation that every disciple needs to follow in Jesus' work. This is a foundation that we need if we are going to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be healthy Christians who form a healthy church, then we need to give attention to the holy hunger that Jesus directs us toward in these verses here today. Now, in last week's passage, we saw the latest in this series of conflicts between Jesus and these uh, really uber-religious individuals of his day, the ones who were overseeing the law, the ones who were trying to govern others and how they would practice the Old Testament law of God, but who had added reason upon reason and, and, and observance upon observance that individuals would have to bear as they sought to live for God, at least according to the religious police of their day. We're talking about the Pharisees. And Jesus has had a number of confrontations with these Pharisees. They started back in Luke chapter 4. That's when ultimately Jesus proclaimed that a man's sins were forgiven, and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. But then Jesus causes this man who's paralyzed to get up and walk, and he gives an affirmation that he has the ability to do what he says that he is doing. Well, then Jesus calls Matthew, who's a tax collector, and Jesus goes and shares in a meal where Matthew's celebrating what Jesus has done for him and inviting all of his friends to come, and here are the Pharisees, and they're looking around, they're saying, why do your disciples dine with those who are tax collectors and sinners and jesus has some more instruction to give some more confrontation that he encounters with these pharisees not long after that the pharisees are asking the question why is it that your disciples don't fast like the rest of us do jesus has to deal with that issue and then we come to luke chapter 6 where we looked at the last couple of weeks on the rest you need and the restlessness that you need and jesus has two more confrontations with these religious zealots these pharisees in that he confronts them on their misunderstandings of the sabbath they accuse jesus's disciples of doing work that is against the law by picking heads of grain on the day of the sabbath and then and then they have this further confrontation where they are specifically out to get jesus they're specifically looking for things that he would do that they could deem wrong so that they could accuse him we read in luke chapter 6 And so we've had a long line of conflicts with these individuals as we jump into verse 12 here today that have ultimately come to their climax in the verse right before the passage that we look at here today because in verse 11 we read that they themselves, the Pharisees, were filled with rage and they discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So as we jump into verse 12 today, you should know that that God's, if God's work is through Jesus is going to press on, then something's got to change, right? 
We're talking about the religious leaders of Jesus' day. If Jesus is going to equip individuals to participate in his work and, he's going, and his church is going to carry on after his ascension, these guys won't cut it because they've seen the miracles. They've seen what Jesus can do. They've seen him at work in action, healing. And yet, in the midst of that, what is their attitude? Their attitude is that they are filled with rage and they're trying to annihilate the very Son of God. And so these leaders had been tried and they had been found wanting. A new sort of kingdom leadership was needed in this moment. Because rather than rallying behind Jesus, they were now rallying in rage to stop his work. And so if God was going to employ men in the service of his new covenant through Christ, then a new sort of leader was going to be needed. And that's what Jesus shows us, both in word and in deed. So let's hear this lesson together. And I just say, if it's not an excessive burden to you, would you stand with me so that we can together read God's word? Just a way for us to cast out distractions as we're reading together. Starting in verse 12 of Luke chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. This is Jesus, all night in prayer. Verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, that's a plain, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And then we have this section of what's known as the Beatitudes, starting in verse 20. Jesus begins his sermon here. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. You may be seated. 
So as we journey through this passage today, as we journey through Jesus' calling of his disciples, Jesus preparing for this message, and ultimately Jesus delivering the first part of this Sermon on the Plain, I want to draw your attention to the, the holy hunger that we see on display and the holy hunger that Christ calls for us to exhibit. Like a doctor who's asking his patients about their appetite, I want to ask you, as we, as we look at this passage here today, three diagnostic questions regarding your own holy hunger. And the first question is this. Are you hungry to be in Christ's presence? Are you hungry to be in Christ's presence? In the opening verses of this passage, Jesus models a holy hunger to be in God's presence himself. He's, he's got this holy hunger to be in the very presence of his own heavenly Father in these moments before he calls these others who will be sharing life with him. Luke records that it was at this time. What, at what time? It's at that time when the Pharisees are now plotting to kill Jesus. At the time when the, when the religious leaders have been tried and found wanting. It's at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. And Luke says that he spent the whole night in prayer to God. There in verse 12. And this is actually the only all-night prayer vigil that we have recorded anywhere in the New Testament. And Jesus is modeling for us here in this moment as he's about to call his disciples this holy hunger, this holy longing to be in God's presence. Because he's about to make a, a huge decision. He's about to call those who would be the foundation of his own bride, the church. He's about to call those who would carry on his work once he had descended into heaven. So this is a very important sort of thing that Jesus is preparing for. And so Jesus commits this decision to intense prayer, all night sort of prayer. He would never make such a big decision without engaging his heavenly Father. And friends, i got to tell you, there's something very instructive for us. Do you face big decisions in your life? Do you have any big decisions that are kind of looming for you right now? Well, i got to tell you, my friends, that if Jesus, the very Son of God, saw the need to be in prayer all night over a big decision that he made, how much more so do we in our decisions as, as fallen and frail individuals need to be in prayer seeking God's will? This is instructive for us as individuals. It's instructive for us as a church. We ought to preface every big decision that we make with intense prayer. If Jesus needed the guidance of the, the Heavenly Father, then surely we do as well. And Jesus had this holy hunger, this holy hunger to see his Father's will done on earth. And so he spent time with the Father communicating in prayer. He spent time in the presence of God. And ultimately we find that holy hunger longs to be in the presence of God. And for us, that means that sometimes we need to be in his presence through prayer. We, we need to be storing his word in our hearts so that we can be in his presence in meditating on what his word calls us to do in various situations in life. We need to be in his presence by studying his word and allowing him to speak truth into our lives because God has richly made his presence ever available to us. And Christ has established for us a direct line to our Heavenly Father. And so let us follow His example. 
and being in the very presence of God and having this holy hunger to know Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to be serving Him. Once Jesus is done with this prayer here, we read in verse 13 that when day came, His disciples came to Him and He chose 12 of them whom He also named apostles. That's a word maybe if you didn't grow up in church context, you're not really sure what that means. What is an apostle? Well, the word apostle in the Greek language really just means one who is sent out. It's someone who's kind of sent out as a delegate, someone who's sent on a commission to carry out a particular task. And this was a very distinct office when it comes to the early church. Only 12 individuals at any given time filled this particular role of being apostles. These are the individuals who would become that foundation of Jesus' church. We read about them in Revelation 21, that their names will be on the foundation of the gates of heaven. And Jesus says later in the book of Luke that they will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a very high calling, a very important sort of calling. When we talk about how the early church decided of all the writings that were floating around, which of these writings is worthy of my putting my own life on the line? Which of these writings is worthy of bringing together in what we now know as the canon of Scripture? Which of these is worthy of defending as the very Word of God? One of the greatest tests of what that was, was was it written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, someone who had been in the very presence, this rich presence of God? And so there's a very divine ordination in this moment that Jesus is calling these individuals and 11 out of 12 of these specific individuals would be leaders in the early church of course there's that one who betrayed him who would not be around for the formation of the church but all of them all 12 would be his chief messengers here during his time on earth why are there 12 well that number is significant I've already kind of made mention to it in that Revelation 21 reference. But if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that when God chose his covenant people, he chose that they would be the descendants of a man named Jacob. That man was also known as Israel. So when we talk about the nation of Israel, we're talking about descendants of this man named Jacob, who was also named, renamed, but ultimately by God as Israel. And so... Israel had 12 sons. Those became the 12 tribes of Israel. And when we're talking about the religion of the day, of Judaism, that Jesus is born into, the religion that these Pharisees are a part of, we're talking about a religion that ultimately was based upon 12 tribes and the descendants of those tribes. And Jesus makes a very clear statement in the selection of 12 individuals who will now become the pillars, the foundations of his church in saying ultimately that this is my new covenant people. There is something new and important that is going on here. He's showing, he's doing something new. He's creating a new covenant community. These these apostles will become the foundation of the church. He's preparing these 12 men to take the gospel to the world. Let's just do a quick survey of who Jesus calls. First of all, there's Simon, who's also referred to in scriptures as Peter, and also as Cephas. Those are words that literally just mean rock, name that Jesus ultimately gave him. Simon would eventually become kind of a leader of the disciples uh, in that he 
oftentimes would be found as one in the, in the New Testament book of Acts, the history of the church, who individuals would go to to make uh, important decisions. And he was, he was an apostle to the Jews, ultimately. And, and, and so we read about Peter and his work, and we find a lot of things in Peter in his example here on earth that, that just don't seem like great qualifications for who we would look for in a leader. I mean, he's a fisherman, first of all. Uh, his trade is not in high intellect. His trade is not in high religious studies. He, he spends his time out, and ultimately, even in his calling that we looked at a few weeks ago, a couple of chapters earlier in Luke, we found that, that Peter was, was even lacking the faith to do what Jesus told him to do in throwing out his net. I mean, he kind of did so reluctantly. Not the kind of guy we'd expect to become a leader in the church. Then we have Andrew, who's, who's Peter's brother, another fellow fisherman. We don't know a lot about Andrew apart from his calling that we find in, in the book of John. We also have James and John. These are brothers. They're more fishermen. Ultimately, James would become the first of these 12 to be killed for his faith in Christ. We find that in the book of Acts. John would be probably the oldest living of the apostles. And ultimately, he was ex exiled to the island of Patmos. He wrote some important letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as a gospel that we know as the gospel of John. Then we have Philip. There's a brief mention of him in the gospels, but he's the, uh, shown as a great evangelist in the book of Acts. We don't know anything about his trade. We know very little about another one who's, who's known as Bartholomew in Luke's account. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see him referred to as Nathaniel. A lot of these folks had multiple names. We've already studied the next one, who was Matthew. And we talked about how Matthew was also known as Levi. This was a tax collector. This was like the, the dregs of society. The guy who was taking advantage of everyone else before Jesus found him in his tax booth one day and called him to follow me. And we have Titus, uh, Thomas, who's known as Didymus as well. It just means twin. What do we know about Thomas? Well, his supreme qualification, the only real inference we have to him in Scripture, is that he doubted that Jesus was actually risen from the grave. Then we got James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know much about him. We got Simon the Zealot. This word zealot probably means that he was engaged in this kind of political society that sought to drive out any influence of Rome in the area of Israel and they would take militant tactics to drive out those who would have Roman influence then we have Judas who's the son of James not Judas Iscariot so there's two different Judases that are mentioned in Luke's list he's referred elsewhere in scripture as Thaddeus again we don't have much information on him and then finally we have Judas Iscariot who what we ultimately know is that he became the betrayer of Jesus who handed him over to the Roman guards so that he was taken away to be executed. Not such a high group of individuals. Not the ex expectation we'd have for who God would choose to change the world. I mean, there are flaws all over these 12 individuals. There's remarkable diversity here. Even as we see Simon the Zealot, who would have been against any sort of Roman influence, and Matthew, who is now a former tax collector for the Roman government, these two would have hated one another when it came to real life before Christ. But you know what? They found something that united them together. They found Christ. He was all they needed to be joined together. And friends, we are here in a church with individuals who come from a variety of backgrounds. And you know what? I think there's even more diversity in our community than we display here in this congregation. 
But that should never be our qualification for who is fit to be a part of this work. Because ultimately, we are bound together with one single unifying element, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the glue that holds us together. I don't care how diverse our backgrounds may be apart from that. If we have Christ, then we have a church, and we have an ability to function under a single Lord who can guide us to do what we should be doing together. But not only was there remarkable diversity in this group, there was remarkable simplicity in these individuals. Jesus doesn't call the elites of society. He calls the common, and he equips them to do elite things. You know, in my business, in my secular job, I work as a technology consultant, and we talk a lot about how the work of consulting and technology is is oftentimes a matter of choosing between buying versus building talent. I mean, you've got some senior individuals who've been out working in technology for a long time, and they know how to do things right. But because they know how to do things right, they come with a pretty hefty price tag. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got guys who are like kind of fresh out of college, right? And, and they don't know how to do a thing other than what they've kind of studied in those few books that they studied at the time of the university, right? And so the decision is, you know, do we spend all the money to bring in the heavy talent or do we take all the investment to invest in those who would ultimately be trained up in the right way that we want them to be and then have those individuals be a part? Now, there's a cost savings riding going this way, but there's also a lot of investment that's required. There's also a lot of risk that's required in that because in a business, once you've taken someone from the ground and you've trained them up, well, then they can go somewhere else and be the senior individuals, right? Then the market is so much higher in demand for them that ultimately we end up losing a lot of guys. But I'm blessed in that I work for a company that has a mentality that wants to improve the marketplace by doing that sort of thing. We're okay to train individuals up and send them out for that purpose. And we've got the same sort of setup in the church where we bring individuals from all sorts of backgrounds who don't seem to be extremely qualified at much of anything. But that's why we're putting this vision kind of focused around what we're talking about here. This is a build sort of vision. This is not a buy sort of vision. We want to see Christ working to mold and to shape individuals into ultimately what he wants to be so that we can set them free to do his work, set them free to be a part of his kingdom, set him free to go and take the gospel to other lands and other churches and whatever God's calling might be on their lives. So when we look at these remarkably simple individuals, we've got to realize that even though our culture identifies leaders by their money or by their status or by their power, it is not the wealthy and the healthy and the popular who jump to the top of Jesus' list. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28, we read this. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. You see, that's where the Pharisees had gotten it wrong. They were trying to boast before God. I've kept every stipulation of the law that I've established They thought they were wise. They thought they were strong. They thought they were something. But they needed God to make them right. 
They needed to know that they were flawed and fallen and broken just like everybody else. They needed to be built. And so Christ chooses a strategy to mold disciples into the men that he wants them to be. And I, I just got to kind of put this in the framework of what we're talking about with our New Vision. So if the disciples were here in this moment at New Vision, where would they be kind of along this progression of what we're talking about, this pottery-informed image of being found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing? Well, we know that they've already been found, right? When we talk about being found, we're talking about gathering together in worship. We want individuals to, through, through this church, we desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be found and, and, and worshiping him here, right? Gathering together in worship. And the disciples are doing that. They've decided to follow Jesus. There's a large group of individuals who've done that at this point. So they've already been found. To a certain degree, they've been formed. I mean, they've been hearing the teachings of Jesus. They're being molded into the image of Christ. And so there's a certain degree to which they are being formed. But, but ultimately... This is kind of the moment, well, it's one of many moments. Ultimately, right, the church is not established yet at this point, so it's not like they're joining the church, per se. They're not, they're not becoming members of God's family in that way, but they're committing to be in the very presence of God. And so this is a firing moment for them, where they must make the commitment that not only am I going to follow Jesus, that everything else falls in the back seat. I am committing that for these They don't know how many years it's going to be, but for these two or three years, my life is going to be spent learning from the master. Now, ultimately, Jesus' goal is that they would be filled and that they would be flowing. How do we know that? Well, if you were to look at what Mark records in his gospel account of of what is happening here with these disciples, we find in Mark chapter 3, 14, a parallel account about the, the disciples being called. And Mark says, he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and so that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. You see, they're spending time in Jesus' presence with the ultimate goal that they're going to be ministering to others as he gives them purpose. And they're going to be taking the gospel to this lost and dying world as this ultimate goal of flowing this grace they've received out into the lives of others. And so these men would do some extraordinary work, but they were just ordinary men. So how do you bring an ordinary person along to do extraordinary things? Well, you show him how to spend time in Christ's presence. Because our extraordinary God can do extraordinary things things through ordinary people and I can't tell you the number of conversations that I've had just over the past two weeks with individuals that I've talked to about various things in the ministry and just expressing my confidence in what people are doing or what they could be doing for God's kingdom and individuals just saying well I just don't think I'm qualified for that sort of thing You're right, you're not qualified. Get over yourself. You've got an extraordinary God who gives the qualifications. He's the one who equips. He's the one who builds. He's the one who transforms. And through him, we can do anything, right? It's what we sang about earlier. And so you have to be willing to be found in his presence if you want him to do extraordinary things through you. This is the time when the disciples make that commitment. 
And so it's kind of interesting that on this day when we're talking about having a membership class, that ultimately we're going to find Jesus calling his disciples to do the same sort of thing, to make this commitment, to be part of this body, to transform the world. And so I ask you, are you hungry to be in Christ's presence? That's the first diagnostic question for you when it comes to evaluating your holy hunger. The second question is this, are you hungry to see Christ's power? Are you hungry to see his power? We read in verse 17 that after Jesus appoints his apostles, he comes down with them and he stands on this level place. That's the place we call the plain. While we talk about the sermon he preaches there is the plain. But as Jesus goes, he takes this group of 12 with him. They come down from the mountain with him. He's called them and now they're committing their entire lives to be with him. Why would they do that? Because they trust him, right? I mean, what, a de- what degree of trust is required if you're going to follow someone and commit your entire lives to be with him? And friends, I just want to ask, are we going with Jesus where he calls us to go? Because the Great Commission calls for us to make disciples of all the nations. Are we going to those who are in need? Are we going to those who are here locally in need are we going to those who are abroad who are in need because jesus surely went to those who were in need he certainly took his disciples along with him as he went to meet those needs he certainly calls for his church to go to those who are in need now and as jesus steps down on this plane as he steps down on this level place he steps down from the mountain with his disciples. He sees this great need in the multitude of individuals who are gathered there waiting for him. Luke shows us that there's a variety of individuals who are gathered there. Really a couple of categories. Some of them were his followers, Luke says. There was a large crowd of those followers per verse, verse 17. Others of them were from Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon. These individuals weren't yet disciples, and some of them never would be disciples. They were there for other reasons. Luke reports what those reasons were. They were there to hear him. They were there to be healed of their diseases. They were there to be set free from the control of unclean spirits. But all of them are kind of reaching out and trying to touch Jesus. And Luke records an interesting fact here in that power was coming out from Jesus and was healing them all. All of them. You know what Jesus did? Jesus used his power to bring relief to their suffering. This is something that he delights to do. In this very moment that we're reading about here in Luke chapter 6, he's using his power to bring physical relief to physical suffering. But ultimately, Jesus came for a greater reason than that. Because ultimately, Jesus would use all of his power to relieve an even greater need. Though he was God in the flesh, he would humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he might set them free. He might stand in their place. He might bear their penalty. He might face their burdens. He might receive their stripes so that they could be healed, so that they could walk in victory just as he arose in victory three days after he died on the cross of Calvary. Jesus came to relieve that greatest of our needs and he gave all in order to meet that need. 
And here in Luke, I think it's interesting that Jesus heals before he teaches. Now, his teaching is not going to be all flowery sort of teaching, okay? He's not just giving you a happy, healthy message to get you on your way so that you can skip along in the rest of life, right? Jesus has some pretty tough truths that he's going to convey in these verses. He speaks of blessings and he speaks of woes. Those who are woeful in God's sight are not right with him. And people who were gathered around Jesus needed to hear the woeful message as well. But we see that Jesus healed them all. It doesn't just say that Jesus healed those who were his disciples, or Jesus healed those who would be the ones that he would talk about being blessed later on. What is Jesus showing in these moments? He's showing ultimately that his desire is not for condemnation. His desire is not that those who are going to face the woes that he's talking about would stay in this woeful state. His desire is that they would find victory. His desire is that they would find healing. His desire is that he would deliver them. He is not willing that any should perish, but he desires that all would come to everlasting life through him. And friend, you may be at enmity with God, You may as clear as day be on the wrong side of his will. And there may be some tough truths that you need to hear. But you also need to know that God is for you. And he is not against you. He does not want to condemn you. He has sent his prized possession, the prince of heaven, to win you back. And that's why Jesus came. And Jesus wasn't all talk. He showed compassion through caring. In his example, there are a couple of extremes that we need to be careful to avoid. One extreme would be to care for people with needs without conveying to them the eternal truths that they ultimately need. Just going out and helping those who are poor to to get a little more money so they can make that next payment on their bills. Or just going out to help those who are sick to be nursed back to health so they can get back to whatever sinful thing they were doing before. That's one extreme to avoid. The other extreme is that we would just stay in one place and preach the gospel and never go out and meet the physical needs of others because Jesus gives an example of doing both of those, my friends. Jesus pairs compassion with conviction. Jesus pieces these things together in his ministry. Jesus ultimately wins the audience of those whom he is preaching to. And we should too. Friends, we need to earn our audience. How much more effective would we be as a church if we spent at least as much time outside of these walls serving the needs of others as we spend inside of these walls gathering together in worship? Now, I'm not talking about truthless deeds, but I'm talking about deeds where we're all equipped to give a defense of the hope that is within us. These where we are all ultimately striving together to see how can we introduce the gospel to others. Where we're taking every opportunity to speak the truth of God into the lives of individuals. How much more effective would we be? I can't help but think that we would see multitudes of individuals coming to Christ if we were to give ourselves in this sort of selfless service and spend as much time outside of these walls loving on others the way that Jesus did, as we do inside of these walls, loving on God because of what Jesus 
has done. Jesus paired words of conviction with acts of compassion. And we must do the same. Are you hungry to see Christ's power? That's the second diagnostic question to evaluate your holy hunger. Here's the final one. Are you hungry to find Christ's comfort? In the midst of this work of healing, Jesus changes his focus. Luke says in verse 20 that before Jesus begins to to speak the spoken portion of his sermon, he turns his gaze toward his disciples. Who's going to be the focus of the message that he's preaching now? Well, first and foremost, it's going to be those disciples, those ones he's just called, those ones he's preparing to do his work. And I just want to ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus? If you are, then listen here, friends. His gaze is aimed at you with these words. Jesus always seems to have this way of comforting those who are afflicted and afflicting those who are comfortable. That's certainly what he's going to do in these verses. He begins by enumerating these who are blessed from a heavenly perspective. We talk about the word blessed in these beatitudes We're talking about a word that simply means happy. This is a a heavenly happiness that is summarized for us. Jesus says if if you want to be heavenly happy, then these ought to be characteristics of your life. And as he describes those who are heavenly happy, he also brings forth a list after that of woes, of individuals who who are not happy in God's sight, who are not heavenly happy, those who are woeful in his sight. And the contrasts are pretty interesting. Look at verse 20. Where you see, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So there's this lack, this deficiency of money, right? You're poor. And and Jesus says, for yours is the kingdom of God. In contrast, you look at verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Verse 21 says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied if you look at the contrast of that in verse 25 woe to you who are well fed now for you shall be hungry verse 21 blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh contrast with verse 25 woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep do you see how jesus is turning the whole thing upside down do you see how he's changing every element of what's going on in the society around him And this is right in the context of those Pharisees who think they've got it all together, who think that they've got the happy, joyous life that's going to get them to heaven because they're checking off all the right boxes, they're doing all the right things, and they think they're on cruise control to get into heaven. But in every one of these cases, in every one of these deficiencies, what is it that's missing? What are the poor and the hungry and the weeping lacking? They are lacking comfort. It may be the comfort of money. It may be the comfort of food. It may be the comfort of laughter. But Jesus says that those who are satisfied with what they receive on this earth and nothing more have their comfort here and now in full. And, and, and we've, we've seen this, right? Have you ever noticed how individuals who are crushed or who are destitute, who have nothing, have a greater dependence on God? I mean, if you don't have anything else, what else are you going to rely on? 
But really, I mean, if we think about that, what greater thing do any of us have to rely on than God himself? And there's a word of caution for each one of us here. Don't let your possessions decrease your dependence on God. And keep a holy hunger for a greater comfort than what wealth or health or laughter or popularity can buy here on earth. And when we have greater worldly comforts, right? When we have the wealth, when we have our health and the food that we need to sustain ourselves, when we have the laughter and the joy of experiencing lots of entertainment here on this world, when we have it all, it makes it tougher for us. We have to make greater sacrifices in order to step out of our comfort zone to meet the needs of our neighbor. And the man who thinks that his life is nothing, on the contrast to that, will find little difficulty. Right? If, if I think my life is nothing, then it's not going to take much for me to lay down my life to, to help you. As Jesus goes deeper in verse 22, he describes those who are lacking the favor of their fellow men for his sake. He says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. Why? For the sake of of the son of man there's a lot of that these blessed individuals are up against right and ultimately this verse is a culmination of what jesus is saying about the blessed why are they poor why are they hungry why are they weeping why are they hated why all the other negativity in their lives jesus leaves this important phrase in there because of the son of man for the sake of the son of man in verse 22 as they're following Jesus, they find themselves hated and ostracized and insulted and scorned by others. And yet Jesus gives a command. What a tough command to live out. He gives a command if you're hated because of him, if you're scorned because of him, if you're ostracized because of him, what is it that he commands for you to do? It's really the only command in these set of verses. I mean, he's got a lot of statements, a lot of promises about who's blessed, but there's really only one command here. And the command that is if you're facing all of this persecution... Verse 23 says, be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now that's a surprising command, my friends. You want me to leap for joy about being hated? Well, if I'm following Jesus, then I've got a reason to leap for joy. You can leap for joy when you're hated because of Jesus. Because you have a greater reward awaiting you in the heavenly realm. We rejoice in our reward. It might not be actualized here on this side of earth. And hear me now, you will probably not experience your best life now if you're following Christ. But there is a greater reward in heaven is what God's word is telling us here. And, and because of our hope in that reward, we can have joy now, we can have joy in persecution. We can have joy in the midst of great hatred. And friends, you must know this thing, this truth. Jesus is worth every sacrifice. He is worth every sacrifice. Invest in him and you will reap eternal rewards. You should know that following Jesus will cost you much, but it will never cost you more than it will gain you. You'll never lose more than you would have been able to keep once your life here on earth comes to an end. And there is greater, longer-lasting happiness with Jesus plus nothing 
than with everything minus Jesus. We can't get away from the fact that Jesus, in these verses, appears to be expecting that those who would follow him would face hatred. They would face scorn by others. Do you ever face the scorn of others for following Jesus? It happens sometimes, right? For some of us, maybe we've got examples of that in our lives, but I think for so many of us, nobody knows enough that we follow Jesus to give a scorn for it. Nobody is aware enough that we are his followers, his disciples, to really give us a hard time about it. The reality in our society is that we've so privatized religion that nobody even knows what we believe. But in Jesus' day, religion was not a private thing. A choice for Jesus meant that an individual would lose favor with his family. He would be dismissed from his synagogue. He would be ostracized from society. Jesus wasn't presenting some sort of complex or secretive teaching. He's giving plain speech in plain sight on the plain in Galilee. Jesus is laying it all out in the open. And his disciples would do the same thing. And for that cause, they would face many persecutions, many troubles. And if you're too comfortable in Christianity, then you may want to examine if you are living by this plain teaching. But then remember, I said Jesus afflicts the comfortable. He also comforts the afflicted. And some of you know what it's like to be scorned because of your following Christ. And these verses are a reminder to you that God has not forsaken you. God knows about the scorn. God knows how you've impoverished yourself, how you've gone hungry, how you've taken deficiencies and hatreds in this world in order to be a servant of His. And that is not a sign that He has neglected you. God knows those who are His. He knows the sacrifices of those who give of themselves for His glory. And this can happen in all sorts of realms of society. It can happen in in an unequally yoked marriage. Maybe you're here and you've got a spouse who's not a believer, and you are a believer, and you've got a spouse who's just constantly ridiculing you. What are you doing over that church again? Why do you think you need to be giving our money to this this church thing? Why why do you think you ought to be out serving in the community? All that's just for waste. Come on, let's, let's go do something else. There can be scorn in the midst of that sort of situation. There can be scorn in the workplace. Amy was telling me just a a few weeks ago, she's taking a job at a local bank here in town, and she was telling me about how some of her coworkers don't have the same sort of language that she has, all right? There are some who use words that are not in our vocabulary. And she had one of her coworkers who specifically mentioned to her, well, we're going to get you to cuss before it's over. She came home and told me that. I said, Amy, you need to go back and tell her that you're going to win her to the gospel before it's all said and done. Because ultimately, there should be this tension, right? And if she can say that she's going to make us cuss, then we can say we're going to win you to Christ, right? If you're going to try and win me another way, I'm going to try and win you to the Lord. But God knows what is good for you. He is not withholding his best from you. He is preparing for you to inherit his best and jesus seems to assume that those who truly follow him will face some hard sacrifices but i think that far too many christians say they follow him but they sacrifice nothing 
I fear we're getting this so wrong. We seem to paint the church in this consumer mentality in our culture and its propensity towards marketing. We say that the church will benefit you. Come to church, it's not going to cost you anything. Come to Jesus, it's all blessings and rainbows from now on. When ultimately Jesus shows that following him is going to lead to some pretty tough circumstances. And I just wonder, are we trading the eternal glory that we ought to be living out and, and bringing to God through this Christian life or these temporary trinkets in the way we do our church? Christ calls us to a costly calling. As we kind of wrap up here, I just want to tell you this. You will outlive your money. You will outlive your health. You will outlive your popularity. You will not take these things into eternity. And if you're not seeking any greater comfort than what you can find here and now on this earth, then Jesus tells you here that you are headed for a woe-filled eternity. And so I ask you, my friends, have you already received your comfort in full? Are you relying on your possessions or your health or your popularity? Or worse yet, are you still striving in aiming every effort of your life toward a comfort that you can't attain and a comfort that will never last, even if you did attain it. If you don't have Christ, then you don't have anything in life that will endure beyond what we will all face here on this earth. And so I just want to close with a final invitation to say, are you looking for comfort? Do you realize that there's something beyond what you've been able to attain in your own pursuits? There's something beyond being healthy and wealthy and happy and, and popular that, that you need in order to have something that endures for all of eternity. Well, friends, I want to tell you the glorious good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come. He has made himself poor. He has made himself weak he has made himself despised so that you can have life he who was most glorious he who sat on the throne of heaven he who was there the very prince of righteousness has given it all in his coming to earth so that he might win you back and now he calls for you to come and to follow him does that mean the following is going to be fun and happy filled life for now ultimately it will be blessed it will be heavenly happy but there may be trials there may be things you need to endure but praise God because Christ is no longer seated in the grave Christ is ascended into heaven and there he awaits to welcome home those who have entrusted their lives to him that they might receive the heavenly reward the riches that he has to share and so I want to invite you to receive the gospel of Christ. How do I do that, you say? Well, the Bible says if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
I mean, it's an important thing we need to do. We need to make a confession that says, ultimately, Jesus is my Lord. He's the one that I'm going to follow. He's the one that I'm giving my life to, the way these disciples did and what we talked about today. And you've got to believe. You've got to have a, a trust. And ultimately, you're entrusting your life to Him. That's what the Bible says is needed. Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. But we come to Him by faith. Would you pray with me for a final word of prayer? Father, as we step into these final moments of invitation, as our band comes forward, Lord, as we have an opportunity to sing, we also have an opportunity in these moments, Lord, to make a commitment, make a decision for you. And Lord, I, I don't know what each and every heart in this place is going through, but you do. I don't know how your word might speak to certain needs in this place but you do oh lord even when you've got a frail broken individual like jeremy parker stepping forward to preach oh lord you can do glorious things in ordinary people and so father i pray now that you would take the seed of your word which has been planted in this moment and that you would cause it to spring forth in lives that are hungry for holiness Bless us, O Lord, that we'll know the right ways to respond in these moments and as we depart from this place that we might be the hands and feet of Christ beyond this time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.